Open is supported by Renaissance Bank. The support of partners like Renaissance Bank allows us to bring you high-quality journalism. Whoever committed this crime, you know, in my opinion, based on all the cases I've worked on and everything, uh, they they intimately knew this family. They they knew this house. Uh, they knew the schedules that day. There's so many questions in this case. It, it can just keep you uh, keep, keep you up at night, uh, running running them through your head, trying to figure out what happened. That's Huffington Post senior crime reporter David Lohr. He and others who have studied the Leochi case are still wrestling with the same questions they did 25 years ago. Unless someone comes forward, they could be wrestling with them for a lot longer. I'm Emma Kent, and in this episode of Open, the case of Leochi, we'll break down the evidence in Lee's case and try to understand why this case has been so challenging to solve. As far as what would I have done differently, um, you know, looking back, hindsight uh, and everything, um, I think we covered that area as best we could considering the conditions that were uh, present. That tropical storm was rolling through. We had uh, torrential rain, you know, threat of tornadoes, you know, that accompanies that kind of threat and everything. We had some bloodhounds that uh, one of our officers had, and he had those dogs out there on the scene that day, and and um, there was just wasn't a whole lot more we could have done. Uh, we canvassed the neighborhood, and uh, other than that, yeah, I don't know what else we could have done. But as far as covering the crime scene and collecting the evidence and everything, we did a thorough job. That's Tupelo Police Chief Barty Geary, who worked the Ochi case as an investigator. He believes investigators did the best they could with the case, given the limited technology available to them at the time. But even modern forensic science hasn't helped them much. And that pretty much sums up the whole issue with the Leochi case. There's not a lot of evidence. There's some blood, and that's about it. At the scene, police found blood on the carpet and a bathroom countertop on a door facing and on Lee's nightgown, which had been placed in a laundry hamper. All they were able to do at that time was determine that the blood was type O. It was the early 90s before modern DNA analysis was available and commonly used. Lee had type O blood, so officers have always operated under the assumption that the blood at the scene was hers. Of course, back then we didn't have the DNA, but now we do. So yeah, we've gone back and done some some different things. We've actually taken some of that evidence, that blood evidence that was left at the scene, and have taken it and have got uh, gotten a, a DNA profile, and that that would come from the the evidence there in the carpet, the evidence that came off her nightgown, and then also a swatch that uh, was taken from the uh, blood smearing on the door facing. I interviewed Dr. Larry Kobolinski, a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City, to find out more about how DNA testing and crime scene investigation has changed since the 90s. Kobolinski has taught courses in forensic science, criminal justice, biochemistry, and other subjects. 
He also helps labs in other countries develop the skills and knowledge to conduct reliable DNA analysis. Kobolinski said DNA analysis was first used by investigators in the United States in the early 1990s to help solve a rape case in Florida. So at the time of the Ochi case, DNA analysis was still very new and much more basic than what we have today. Kobolinski said the testing at that time was done by looking at a single locus, which is the scientific word for a genetic marker. At its time, it was extremely powerful, but now we know that testing with a single locus is insufficient and will not get you very far because you can get an inclusion of a suspect, but it might be a false inclusion. In other words, one locus is insufficient to say to any degree of, of, of probability or, or to have any kind of uh, feeling about uh, certainty. Uh, clearly, uh, one locus, uh, one site, one genetic site is just not enough for testing in criminal matters. As time went on, DNA testing became more sensitive and accurate as techniques were developed to look at more and more of those genetic markers. The more genetic markers that are tested, the more complete the DNA profile becomes. We are using uh, a number of commercial kits uh, to help us do the modern technology. Uh, We typically look at 15 genetic sites, uh, all uh, amplified with PCR, PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction. It's a method of copying strands of DNA to create a larger DNA sequence. The crazy thing about this technology is that you only need an extremely small amount of DNA to use it. Because DNA is repetitive, forensic scientists are able to use PCR to take a small DNA sample and build a profile that helps them rule out or identify suspects. And according to Kobolinski, those new techniques can be used on old evidence. At the same time, we could look at blood evidence back in the early 90s, 1992, uh, and analyze it today because the technique can look at old, even degraded DNA uh, in the form of evidence and generate information from there. DNA is a very um, hardy substance. It survives lengthy periods of time, um, and we know that DNA has been collected from um, archaeological specimens, from mummies, um, and from even uh, older uh, organisms that are no longer with us. But it is a very hardy chemical. And the bottom line is, is that the best way to preserve DNA is if it is dry and cold. And even if if the conditions were not that perfect, um, there is still a very good possibility Um, using some specialized techniques that have been developed from the World Trade Center catastrophe. Um, Those techniques can be used on highly degraded DNA and still come up with uh, some very, very valuable information. You know, we talked a little bit about preserving DNA and what you're supposed to do. Was that pretty common even, um, you know, in the early days, in the 90s? Was that common practice of preserving it or was it different then? Well, even then, back in the 90s, uh, scientists knew the best way to preserve DNA. See, the problem is is that when DNA is in a moist environment, you can have bacteria um, infecting or contaminating the sample. Even back then, people knew to keep specimens dry 
Uh, people were told don't put anything in plastic, in plastic bags because you would grow molds, you will, you will have contamination. And we've looked at cases 30, over 30 years old and got, got good results. So I'm optimistic that if there is DNA left in this case, even if at one point it had been tested and deemed inconclusive, that it could still be tested nowadays with good results. The blood found in Lee's house that day has since been tested using modern techniques. The most recent tests were done in 2014. Tupelo detectives reviewed the case in 2014 and worked with the FBI to send some of the evidence back for further testing, including blood, the envelope, stamps, teeth, and the nightgown. During the initial investigation, Vicki gave police some of Lee's baby teeth. Out of all of that, they were able to develop a DNA profile of Leochi, and it was logged into the Missing Persons Index of CODIS, the Combined DNA Index System, a nationwide database operated by the FBI. Having Lee's DNA profile is important so that if someone finds her, police will be able to verify that it's actually her. There was also what the lab calls intermingled, non-interpretive DNA in the blood sample. So there were traces of another person's DNA, but there was not enough, and it was too damaged to be used. Chuck McDougall, public information officer for the Tupelo Police Department, said there is no way to know exactly why the DNA sample was not testable. It could be damaged for a host of reasons, including contamination at the crime scene or the fact that it's more than 20 years old. And that's the challenge that, that we've fought all these years is that the new technology doesn't equate to the old samples because the old samples were, were tested using the older ways. DNA is great for comparative analysis if you've got a suspect or if you've got a victim in hand. Mm -hmm. um, it's much more difficult to use DNA to identify an unknown suspect out of 350 million people. That's the challenge with DNA evidence. Beyond DNA evidence in the Ochi case, there are plenty of other things to unpack. We touched on some of those in earlier episodes, but one thing I keep coming back to is trying to pinpoint when the crime actually took place and what that says about the person who did it. Based on the blood at the scene, investigators decided that whatever crime happened inside Lee's house must have happened pretty soon before her mother arrived home. Technically, Lee is still considered a missing person. Without a body, police can't say for sure what type of crime took place in the house, but they suspected foul play from the beginning. We feel certain that it was that morning um, around the time that Vicki had left and the time she returned. The, the blood was still very moist. Um, it was easily collected, you know, out of the carpet. It uh, had not dried yet. Everything still appeared to be very fresh. Aguirre said even factoring in Mississippi's hot and humid August weather, the blood likely had not been there for very long. Well, even still, what you would look to see is whether or not even the edges around these blood stains had not dried yet. So everything was still very, very fresh. If you remember from our earlier episodes, Lee's mother, Vicki, said she left for work on the morning of August 27, 1992, around 7.40 a.m., leaving Lee at home alone. Vicki called Lee at 8.30 a.m. to check on her, and when Lee didn't answer, she got worried. So Vicki left work and went home to check on Lee. She arrived at the house around 8.45 a.m. and called the police to report Lee missing around 9. My mother-in-law, Joanne Kent, who believed she saw Lee walking on the road that day with an older man, would have likely seen her before Vicky called home. However, she said she doesn't remember seeing any signs that the girl she saw was injured. I mean, I left the house at 8, and it probably took me 
I mean, it took me all of 12 minutes to get from my house to the garden center. So Mm -hmm. it was probably... Right after 8. Yeah, between 8 and 8.15. She did not appear. She appeared frightened to me, Mm -hmm. but she did not appear injured at all. I saw nothing like that. Nothing like that. Um, You know, maybe that's why he put his coat around her on the backside. I don't know, but... You would think if there was that much blood in the house that I would have seen something on her. But then again, it was pouring down rain. Right. From the time Vicki said she left for work until she came home was about an hour window. If police believe that the blood found at the scene was fresh and they believe Vicki, then that means whatever happened to Lee happened in a pretty narrow window of time. Vicki also told police that she found the garage door open and the garage light on when she arrived home, meaning it had probably just been opened a few minutes before she arrived. I talked to Huffington Post senior crime reporter David Lohr about the Ochi case, and he isn't as convinced that the crime took place in that short window of time. David has been writing about crime for 25 years, and before working at the Huffington Post, he worked for Discovery Channel, Crime TV, and other media outlets. He wrote about the Liochi case in 2008. He even visited Tupelo and interviewed a lot of the same people that you're hearing in this podcast. The big thing for me was really the, the blood. That's always bothered me. Uh, you know, and not so much that they, they speculate how long it's been there, but, but they, they came out and stated it like fact. Mm-hmm. And, hey, you know, the, this was here for an hour. And that, that's always something that bothered me. Uh, because, okay, so let, let's say investigators are right and, and the blood was fresh. So that leaves roughly, uh, I, I believe it's an hour from the time uh, Vicky went to work uh, until the time uh, she returned home uh, and found the believes Lee was likely killed inside the house, but that the crime took place earlier than investigators believe. Based on where the blood was found inside the house, police believe that Lee likely sustained a head injury from a door frame. David agrees with that theory. It was on a door frame where they found hair, they found blood on the floor that suggested her, her head had been shoved in the door frame, she fell on the floor, you know, bled for an unknown amount of time, and then uh, I believe it was the investigator told me there was blood down the hallway and out a, out a door into the garage. And uh, we know that their, a sleeping bag was missing, uh, along with some of uh, Lee's articles of clothing. Now, you, you, you could argue, you could say, hey, well, you know, maybe this was a, a burglar. He went in there, he wasn't expecting anything to be, anyone to be there, and, uh, you know, he just reacted, and, and that's what happened to Lee. Well, well, that's possible. However, you know, a, a lot of burglars, it, it would seem odd to me that he would take the time to not only attempt to clean up the, the crime scene, because we know someone had attempted to, but stop, but also take the body with him in the process. Because, I mean, then you're opening up a whole other can of worms. you got to worry about getting this body out of here, about getting caught with this body. What am I going to do with this body? David also said he thinks one of the key pieces of evidence in this case are Lee's glasses, which were mailed to her home a few weeks after she disappeared. According to him, they could be a good indicator as to what type of criminal was at work. It seems kind of unlikely that it was just a random crime, and especially given uh, the glasses that were sent later on. I mean, what burglars can go in there 
accidentally kill her and then mail her glasses to her family. It's just, it doesn't make sense. Uh, so it certainly suggests that whoever committed the crime was familiar with this family. Uh, they were aware, likely aware that, that she was there. And uh, they were obviously familiar enough with the family to send the glasses back. My speculation would be uh, if it was someone in this family who committed this crime, uh, I would say that the glasses were addressed to the stepfather to throw off uh, the investigator's scent, you know, to, to get them to focus on him as, a, as opposed to the person uh, who had actually committed uh, this horrendous crime. I mean, the type of killers, uh, in my experience writing about serial killers, mass murders, everything like that, those type of guys, they, they get a perverse satisfaction out of sending um, mementos uh, to the police or, or to the victim's family. You know, it, it, it gets them excited. It gives them a rush. And so then, you know, they, they live on that rush for a while after they sent that first item. And, you know, the, the news dies down and everything. And they're like, well, you know, I want to experience that again. So now I'm going to send this item and, and so on and so forth. That's why I, I don't think that this was some crazed, deranged killer uh, who did this and, and was seeking attention, uh, uh, I think it was more a move to throw off law enforcement. There's still one piece of this whole story that I can't figure out, and that's the reason why the police department never contacted Joanne after she reported seeing Lee right after her disappearance. Maybe the tip fell through the cracks somehow. Aguirre did say they were getting a ton of calls. In my interview with Aguirre in June, he was talking about how Lee's case had been so challenging for investigators because there wasn't much evidence and no eyewitnesses. I asked him if he knew anything about Joanne's reported sighting. The case is still considered open, so I wasn't able to see the case files to find out which tips were documented or followed up on. We weren't able to find anybody that saw her walking away from the house, so, you know. But here again, you're talking about a day that was raining and the wind was blowing and you wouldn't ordinarily be caught outside walking in that kind of I mean we're talking about heavy rain yeah you know so actually it's funny that you say that I have now this is my mother-in-law and I I believe her but you know but anyway she said that on the day that Leah she went missing she thinks she saw her walking down the road sure enough with a man, with an old man, is what she's told me. How come she never came forward and reported said, that to the police? Well, she said that she called. Really? Uh, she said that she called. We'll have to take a look at the files and see. I mean, it's been so long. Do you think she would be able to identify the guy she, if she ever saw a picture of him? She said she remembers. She said she remembers what he looks like. You know, this is the kind of information that could break the case right here, you know, that I was talking about, so. About a month after that interview with Aguirre, our crime reporter William Moore got court records from the two crimes committed by Oscar Kearns, that other person of interest who knew Lee from church. The records include statements describing the crimes from Kearns and from the victims, both young women. One victim describes the man as being about 5'10", roughly 180 pounds, with graying brown hair and wearing a military-style jacket, jeans, and white shoes. The other victim's statement doesn't give a physical description. This is how Joanne described the man she saw with a young girl in Lee's neighborhood on the day she went missing. You said you can remember what he looks like. I can, rem- I can tell you exactly what he looked like. What, do you, what did he look like? He was a shorter man, uh, not heavy set but thick. 
He had a army type jacket on, not camouflage, but just like green. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a hood, and uh, he had the hood down when I first saw him. And then when I when I got closer to them, he he popped the hood over his head. But he had gray hair, very scruffy, not a beard, just like he hadn't shaved in two or three days. After reading those records, I thought the similarity between the victim's description and Joanne's was worth noting. So I emailed the information to the police department and was assured it would be passed along to the detective's division. According to Lee's father, Donald Ochi, her stepfather, Barney, was a small man, about five foot six or seven and somewhere between 130 and 140 pounds. Barney had brown hair at the time. If Joanne did see Lee that day, it doesn't seem like the man with her could have been Barney, based on her description. Weeks later, William talked to Aguirre and McDougald about the case. When was the last time anything new came in? I know we've had one this year. and Maybe have talked to, to somebody or have got some emails, but I'm not sure exactly when that came in and, and what... Uh, uh, was done about it or anything. I'm sure if anything had have been produced by it, you know, we would have, you know, I would have heard of it. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Anything relevant would have been yeah. uh, would have been at the top of our radar real quick. We had um, um, this other guy that's doing time in prison now, you know, on a, unrelated uh, charges and everything, but, uh, you know, you just wonder whether or not there's a connection there. And until you can, you know, get all of these pieces and put them together to, to complete that puzzle, you know, you'll always wonder whether or not, you know, it'll ever come together. In late September, just two days before we were set to release this podcast, Joanne got a call from Captain Jerry Davis with the Tupelo Police Department. They were finally going to hear her story. In our next and final episode, we hear from those who still hope for closure in Lee's case. This episode of Open, The Case of Leochi, was produced by Chris Kiefer with music by J.B. Clark. You can subscribe to Open on the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit djournal.com slash openpodcasts to stream episodes and access additional content. Connect with us on Twitter at open underscore podcast or find us on Facebook. You can also contact us via email with tips, information, or just your thoughts about the show at openpodcast at journalinc.com. That's journalinc.com. Special thanks to Renaissance Bank for their support of this podcast.